Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. As you may have heard, Jane Caro has announced that she is running for the Senate in the next federal election. We recorded this interview before that announcement, but as you'll hear, Jane is not a person to be a passive observer. If she is successful, I have no doubt that she will shake Canberra up. She's a woman known for saying what's on her mind. Her low boredom threshold has seen her embrace many careers, including novelist, lecturer, mentor, social commentator, columnist, workshop facilitator, speaker, broadcaster, and award-winning advertising writer. She may not be the CEO of an organization, but in 2018, won a Women in Leadership Awards at the Walkleys and was also appointed an AM in the 2019 awards in recognition of her significant service to the broadcast media. She's also the Chief Energy Officer, aka CEO for her ideas. Jane has appeared on Channel 7 Sunrise, ABC Television's Q&A, Drum, and as a regular panelist on the Gruen Transfer. She lectures in advertising at the University of Western Sydney and is on the board of the New South Wales Public Education Foundation. She's a passionate advocate of public education and proudly a feminist and an atheist. She is a prolific author and her books include The Stupid Country, How Australia is Dismantling Public Education. Jane is provocative and not everyone agrees with her, but you can't ignore her. Her advice to women is to be yourself. Don't try to be something you are not, but do not undersell yourself and don't internalise rejection. Some really great advice there. Enjoy. It's a real delight to welcome Jane Caro to the Caring CEO podcast. Welcome, Jane. Oh, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Jane, what does care in the workplace mean to you? I think it means that the people who lead that workplace recognise that their job is not to be the most important or the most talented or the most admired person in the room, their job is actually to get the best out of the people who work for them, to create an environment and an atmosphere which is safe so that and, and where you feel valued because that's the only time that people will take risks. And when people take risks is when you get creativity, new solutions, um, ideas that no one's ever had before. If you create a workplace that's based on fear, that's highly competitive, where there's a lot of judgment and, you know, you're expected to be jumping over the bar all the time and the bar is always being raised, mm. it conversely, it actually, it stops people taking risks. Absolutely. They start to try to second guess what they think the boss wants them to do rather than what they believe is the right solution to whatever the problem is. And that's the very worst kind of management. And sadly, in my experience, it's the most common kind. 
There's a lot of talk at the moment about having psychologically safe teams. And what that is, exactly what you've described, is people can take risks, they can be their authentic selves, they can make mistakes and they learn from them quickly and they support each other, they have each other's back. Why do you think that uh, so many organisations are late to get on that trend, which is absolutely essential for success today? I think um, Australia's always suffered from a kind of machismo um, version of leadership. I've seen a lot of leaders who, must, and I think we see it in politics at the moment, to be honest with you, mm. um, who confuse bullying with strength. Mm. They confuse thumping the table and yelling and being loud and, you know, that's stupid and really being very harsh and judgmental and aggressive as um, showing strength. Of course, it's the opposite. People who behave like that are very weak. But um, for a very long time, I think we've been captive to that particular very hyper-masculine. That doesn't mean it's only men who do it, by the way. It's just a particular style. I've seen women do it as well. Um, That particular style of leadership, and it is, in fact, a destructive style of leadership. And what it usually leads to, and whenever I found myself working in a, a place um, and my experience being managers in creative departments in ad agencies, whenever I found myself working in a place that was run like that, I'd get my CV out and start looking for another job. Mm. And that means people with options, your best people, the people who've done the best work, will leave. Yeah. And you had a very successful career in the advertising industry and copywriting what is there any difference, do you think, of managing a creative team versus, I don't know, an accounting team, for example? Yes, I think there is. Um, and I think it's because when you, when you are in a uh, creative occupation where you're given a brief and you don't have much to work on, you've usually got one sentence which says we want to communicate X, Y, Z to this group of people. You just have to go away and you have to mine your life, your experience, your instincts, your knowledge, your um, guts to find an unusual, original, amusing, hopefully, or moving um, solution to that particular um, communication problem. Mm. Mm. So you are exposing your inner self when you put that work forward. It's not just your work. Mm. It's actually you that you're putting forward onto the page. I mean, I've got a novel coming out in March and I'm absolutely terrified because I have put, I've poured myself into the words on that page because that's the only place it comes from. It comes from in you. And um, so, yes, there has to be a caring C creative director, which is the mm. people I work for, was able to tell me and other people who work for them why something was good and why it wasn't right, mm. so that, of course, often happens, in a way that respected that you'd actually dragged up something from your inner self mm. uh, to solve that particular problem. They understood that. And by understanding that and by being respectfully articulate about why it was good, why it wasn't, whatever, um, or whatever suggestions they were offering, um, they created that place of safety, of psychological safety you were just talking about, mm. where you could take those risks um, and feel like you wouldn't be mocked or put down. I mean, I've sat in rooms where, you know, I hated them. We used to do what was called a brainstorm and, oh, God, I hated them. <laughs> well, you get people putting ideas out there and nobody owned the idea. You know, the ideas were orphans. Mm. And so, and the thing that everybody agreed to, nobody loved. 
<laughs> so it always turned out not to be that great an idea. Really, an idea is a pressure. It's like a child. I always used to think of it as a child, and a child needs a parent. It needs mm. someone who guides it and guards it and, and knows what it's about and knows what, what's good about it and advocates for it and um, really kind of brings it up through its process from being a script on a piece of paper to a finished TV commercial or a printout or poster or whatever the hell it turns out to be, novel, whatever. So you really need that kind of supportive atmosphere where people respect you, think that you are capable of doing great work and want to do everything they can to help you do the best work you're capable of. Quite often I worked in departments which didn't have that attitude where really it was all about beating the other guy. Mm. And so, in fact, particularly if you were the only woman in the department, this was the 80s and 90s, remember, and you had a different idea, that they didn't like that much at all. Yeah. I've been beaten by a woman. That happened to me quite a lot. You've been a real advocate for women assuming more senior roles in business, in government, in the community. Why do you think we're still not in great shape with the number of women that are pioneering? Because these are ancient, ingrained prejudices that have been around for thousands of years. And um, I often say, you know, 2,000 years of people being disappointed when you were born is not overcome in a few decades. And we have to remember <laughs> that until very recently when a girl was born, it wasn't as cause for greater celebration as when a boy was born. Mm. And it's still like that in a lot of mm. cultures. Mm. Um, and that kind of you're lesser than attitude is not just held by uh, those who regard themselves as your superior, but it's internalised by mm. the people who are brought up with that your lesser than uh, perspective on themselves. And so it's both a push and a pull. Mm. And uh, I think for a long time, and certainly when I was in um, business, it was just considered, well, you know, we're not stopping you, though they were, <laughs> um, but they'd say they wouldn't. And, mm. you know, any woman who got anywhere was given as an example that, you know, um, it was all open to anyone who tried. So the implication was women don't get ahead because they're not up to it. Mm. They don't try hard enough. Mm. They're not good enough. Mm. It was very, very much the attitude that women weren't really good enough or they didn't aspire to that. You know, we, we much preferred sorting your socks apparently. That was much more fulfilling <laughs> for women, oddly, um, and for nothing most of the time. Um <laughs> But uh, so we were, so we incorporated that image about ourselves, and that made it very hard. I mean, I used to go to advertising creative lunches, and um, a lot of people in advertising, I and mean, we work with words, and so a lot of people are very witty, very creative, very quick-witted, very good with the comeback and the repartee. And uh, I remember I used to come out sweating because it was almost like a competi competition, you know, and, wow. and people mm. who made the wittiest remark and I would I would be reticent because my humour was slightly different than a lot of the guys because my life experience was different mm. and I didn't want to be mocked or put down or have that awful moment where you think you've made a funny remark and the guys will go, huh, and mm. you feel like you want to die. Um, and that happened a lot. So you get very tentative about putting yourself forward. And women are very conscious that when you're the only one or the only one of two, um, everything you say and do is not stands out and also you become a representative of your entire gender. It's like mm. a person of colour who may be the only one. They're a representative of their entire community. Mm. That's a burden that you drag around with you and you're judged more harshly. Um, 
I remember uh, hearing a um, very senior um, CEO say at one point about his board of directors, oh, we had a woman on the board once. She was dreadful. We tried. It didn't work. So we're not <laughs> doing it again. And I said, do you think all women are exactly the same? You sort of just pop one in and that's it. Oh, well, <laughs> but it was. That was the attitude that mm-hmm. if you made a mistake or if you lost your temper or you were just a human being and not perfect, then that was proof positive that women weren't really suited to the boardroom or the creative department or whatever it was. Um, and there was, there was an, that, the, I, I was always taught in advertising, if you want to know why behaviour continues, follow the benefit. Well, the benefit was they hobbled half the population mm. and managed to keep the best jobs for themselves. That's still going on. That's still going on. And we also have, we see that in this government in particular, religious views Mm. that strongly believe that women should be at home um, helping the man, that we should be the wind beneath men's wings rather than actually soaring ourselves. And that's very hard to change that view. No one will admit to it anymore. But that doesn't mean they don't still believe it. Yeah. When um, you think about the last couple of years, and particularly the last year, there's been so much change and volatility. And the type of uh, leadership that really goes well in that sort of situation is consultative style. And I think you can't make black and white statements, but I think women are better at the consultative style and better at reading a room and better at EQ. And it's interesting seeing you know, some of the best countries that have managed COVID. And, uh, you know, you look at um, Jacinda Ardern in, in um, New Zealand and, and Angela Merkel, you know, who, who did very, very well. Um, and uh, the, the whole consultative element just has to become more the norm to, to get great results. It really does because no one person owns the truth. <laughs> no. I think, though, the problem with that is we've got a backlash and Mm. so there's been an exaggerated kind of machismo coming back Mm. at this idea that consultative leadership is uh, a better way to go. I I would agree. I think women are more consultative, are better at EQ and reading the room, not intrinsically, not because we've got ovaries, um, but because... We've had to be because we've been the subordinate culture. When you're the subordinate culture, you have to be very good at reading Mm. uh, the men's attitudes around you because they Mm. have power over you. Mm. When you're the dominant culture, you don't have to have much EQ. It doesn't really matter what other people think and feel who are not in charge or are not going to have any influence over what happens to you. When you're the subordinate culture, Mm. you really have to be good at that. So mm. I think this is just part of coming from a subordinate culture. Mm. I think you'd probably find that people of colour, people with a disability, you know, all the other people who um, have been left out, not considered the norm, mm. um, would also have a very uh, a strong ability um, to do that kind of thing. And particularly women of colour, women with a disability, I mean, it's a double, in, if you like, need. They don't just need to be able to read the room in terms of white men and white women, but they also need to be able to read the room when it's their own culture's men who are there because they all have power and influence mm-hmm. more than the subordinate culture. So it's it's an intrinsic skill learnt by those who must persuade a group that isn't them to give them the opportunity 
Yeah. It's just logical. I know you're also very passionate about education and you wrote a book called The Stupid Country. What was that about and why did you think it was an important message to spread? Oh, it's still the most important message. Its full title is The Stupid Country, How Australia is Dismantling Public Education. Mm. Um, My great passion is not for education per se. My great passion is for public education, Mm. um, and that is education, compulsory, universal, free education, free to the purchaser, uh, available to all comers regardless of who their parents are. Mm. That, to me, is a bedrock value of a functioning democracy. Mm. When you start to undermine that, and Australia is leading the world in undermining public education amongst democracies, absolutely, we're outliers of doing that. Mm. Um, When you start to do that, you fatally undermine your democracy. You start to create a situation where you basically have a you entrench, you can only entrench, if you if you say parental choice is the bedrock value of our education system, which is what Australia has done, which is a neoliberal attitude, mm. it's all about choice, and it's about parental choice. I'm strange. I thought education was about giving kids opportunities. I thought it was about kids. Oh, God knows what's wrong with me. No, it was about parents. I, it was, I, I had my education. I thought it was about kids. Um, anyway, apparently it's not. Um, But if you entrench parental choice, for perfectly logical reasons, you can only entrench privilege and underprivilege because no child is disadvantaged through any of their own doing. They are disadvantaged because they were born into the wrong womb. Now, maybe that's their fault. Maybe we should punish them for generations for not making their parents better. But I think that's a very stupid attitude because talent doesn't just pop up in nice middle-class households with parents who can make good and reasonable choices or have the money to be able to pay for those choices. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're really entrenching a class system. And so Australia, through its education system, and this is alone in the world, most, certainly the democratic world, most countries use their education system to try and mitigate the class system, to sort of break down those. Oh, no, not Australia. No, 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 no. We use public money, billions of it, uh, to entrench and increase the gaps between those children who were born fortunate and those children who weren't quite so lucky in the lottery dip of birth. Um, I find it shocking and I look directly at the people who run us in Australia. It goes straight back to everything we were talking about, macho leadership, the inability to talk about collaboration or to be consultative, uh, the fact that our parliaments, our business, the halls of our businesses, the halls of our judicial system, our military, you name it, are absolutely dominated by white, private school-educated blokes Mm. says all you need to know about the limitations of Australia. Mm. And that is directly attributable to the way we fund our education system and the way we have encouraged middle-class parents to desert public education so that it is in danger of becoming a residualised welfare system of education for the poor, which is a disaster. Mm. So hence we are a very stupid country and hence we have very stupid leadership. Yeah. And CEOs. Do you think that um, quotas are good for that as a, as a strategy going forward? Um, I think quotas are really good for uh, women, people of colour, etc. I think we need quotas. Um, I'm absolutely 100% behind them. Um, 
I think in terms of education, it's much more dire than that. We don't want to pluck winners from public schools and move them into a nicer class of hmm. school hall or something at yeah. all. That would be a that's a terrible thing to do. Mm. No, what we need to do is stop funding private schools or at least have a good look at whether we should be giving public money to schools that charge tens of thousands of dollars a year. Mm. Um, and we need to, what we should really be doing is funding our public school system to the point where it is gold standard and you'd have to be an idiot to choose to send your kid anywhere else. And if it's not good enough for your kid, you should be getting active in making yeah. sure it is because if it's not good enough for your kid, it's not good enough for any kid. And you can't walk away from all kids and say you don't care. But in terms of quotas for diversity, though I hate the word diversity, I think it's really important. We will not get change until we have them. And I have a number of, I think, absolutely rock-solid arguments as to why quotas are reasonable. What are they? Well, the first one is we already have quotas for all sorts of things. Mm. Our entire cabinet is made up of quotas. Mm. You know, they have to have X number of people from WA. They have to have X number of people from this faction and that faction. And, you know, mm. every state has to be represented, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those are all quotas, quotas, quotas and quotas. In fact, yeah. Barnaby Joyce is only Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, if he currently is, I'm confused, I think he is, he's <laughs> only Deputy Prime Minister of Australia because of a quota. Mm. The Deputy mm. Prime Minister of Australia, it, when the Liberal National Party is in power, is always the leader of the National Party. That yeah. is a Quota. Mm. So yes. we're already happy with quotas for boards. No worries. Most boards of directors have quotas. They'll often have to have directors from different states. They'll often often have to have them from different depart, you know, different areas of expertise. They might have to have um, a staff representative. Quota, 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 quota. Mm. Do we care? No, but women. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 not allowed, not allowed. The other reason is a couple of others. But the other, the big one, the main one, is everybody seems to have forgotten. Australians are very bad at remembering history. Everybody seems to have forgotten that pesky 100% quota that operated in favour of men for about, I'd say, at least 2,000 years and probably longer when every single position of power was held by a man when women had no right to their own money, they didn't control their own body, they couldn't buy a home, they couldn't own land, you name it, they couldn't have it, couldn't inherit, um, they couldn't be king, they couldn't be queen, you know. Um, we've only just, the British royal family's only just changed it so that if Charlotte had been born before George, she would have automatically been the monarch regardless. That only just changed in the last 10 years. Um, that is a 100% quota. Every step that women have made has been a chip away at that 100% quota. Mm. And if we don't think that that 100% quota gave men one hell of a leg up, <laughs> well, we're crazy. So my argument is what are women asking for at the moment? We're asking for if we're extreme, 50%. If in actual fact, if we were really talking about even Stephen, we'd say, 100% quota for the next 2,000 years and then we'll talk. And that would be fair. <laughs> when you put it like that, it, and especially about the quotas that already exist that people don't think about, uh, you know, you mentioned about uh, the leader of the National Party automatically becomes the, the, the Deputy yeah, Prime Minister. It's a quota, people. It's a quota and nobody gets up in arms about it and says, well, we need him on there, on there. <laughs> 
Likewise, on the left, you know, it's it's the um, you know in the uh, labour, it's the left and the right, and and working out what what sits there, factions, all that sort of stuff. It's all all very much uh, a quota system. On the left, in the Labour Party, I will give them this: they do have quotas for women. They do, and they've made a lot more progress. A lot more progress, absolutely. That's why they have so many. So they've accepted that if they've got quotas for some positions. What the hell difference does it make if you have quotas for women? And frankly, if you say to me that everyone should get ahead on merit, look around you. Look at the people at the top. Hand on heart. You reckon they got there on merit? (laughs) If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress, and this provides easy-to-follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. You mentioned previously, Jane, that you've, um, you've written a fiction book which is coming out next year. Is that your first fiction book? No, it's um, my first. <laughs> it sounds really weird. I, I could say adult fiction, but then everyone thinks I've written porn. Um, <laughs> it's my it's my first book fiction book for adults. I've written a trilogy about Elizabeth Tudor, Elizabeth I, for young adult readers, um, Just a Girl, Just a Queen and Just Flesh and Blood yeah. uh, with University of Queensland Press. So yeah. those were my first novels, though they are uh, based on fact, whereas this novel, The Mother, is entirely based at set today and it's entirely a work of imagination. And you mentioned before that's a a really scary thing for you and, you know, you're quite apprehensive about the response. Why do you think that, uh, you know, that fiction is harder than non-fiction? Because in in non-fiction you've got facts. So if people disagree with your facts, so someone reads A Stupid Country and thoroughly disagrees with me, that's fine. They're disagreeing with um, a philosophy, a set of circumstances um, and the evidence that I've amassed. They've come to a different conclusion or they disagree with um, what I've put forward. That's an intellectual discussion that uh, you can have in a way on a um, a less personal level. Mm. But any work of imagination is a personal journey. So, I, when I write books, like even the Elizabeth novels, I just felt compelled to write the story and I've written it in the first person, so that's pretty arsy. I've <laughs> pretended <laughs> that I'm Elizabeth Tudor. Yeah, well. Um, anyway, uh, arrogant or not, they have sold quite well, so other people have obviously enjoyed them too. But it's it, you have this compulsion and you don't know why. Not really. You might have ideas why, but you don't know why. It comes from an unconscious place, an unconscious drive. Mm. I've actually just written an article 
Uh, and the mother is nothing like my Elizabeth Hooks, except in one way. I've realised that all my fiction, now it's four of them, um, is about women taking back the power or, or refusing to give up their power. Elizabeth mm. Tudor, of course, famously never married yeah. and was a, a absolute monarch and considered yeah. to be a good one yeah. um, for 45 years. And The Mother is a very different book, but it is, again, about a, a woman who, in a very dramatic way, refuses to allow her power to be taken away from her or from her daughter and grandchildren. So it is all my books are about power, but I didn't realise any of that until I finished them. Right. <laughs> anyway, you're, as an author, as a novelist, as a fiction writer, you're actually dealing with your own demons mm. and you're putting them on the page to kind of work them out. Yeah. So that's why it's so different and so challenging because you've really you have exposed yourself yeah um not just your thoughts but your guts the things you don't even understand all that well about yeah. yourself and uh how how long did it take you to write and do you have any ritual or schedule to progress it uh it, well look it took me a I think from go to woe, about 18 months to write. I had the idea, it dropped into my head almost whole um, and it was a very uh, dangerous idea, I realised that, but it was compelling and so I risked it. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm nervous. It is, um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's about violence. So it's, um, yeah, it's risky. Yeah. So that'll that'll get some strong response. Mm. Well, I intended that, I suppose, but mm. doesn't mean it's any easy. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I just sit down and write it. Like there's nothing else to do. I don't have a, a complete ritual about it. It doesn't have to be every day. Mm-hmm. I have a deadline and I work towards that. Um, and I just start at the beginning and write till I get to the end. Mm. And, yes, I do research along the way. I did quite a lot of research for this. And as I get close to particular parts of the book where I needed to know more about certain things, I would then go off and find out about them. And I quite enjoy that. That's quite yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, and you can always find it. That's the thing. And um, then, of course, you send off the draft that you've laboured over to the publisher when you think it's in a half-decent fashion. Um, and then they come back with their edits, their structural edit. And in this particular case with the mother, the structural edit was incredibly important and the editor was great and really got me out of a a fix I'd got myself into Mm -hmm. and helped me to to, um, make the book much better and more powerful. So, again, writing a novel, even though it feels like it's just you, it is a collaborative effort as well, Um, like anything worthwhile. How do you take care of yourself? What's your self-care strategy? Uh, well, I try to get a walk in every day for at least an hour. Um, I, my husband and I have just come back from Pilates, um, so we do that twice a week. Um, I see my kids as much as possible, my grandchildren as much as possible. I, I don't tie myself to my desk. My, I had, do have a really nice situation now. I've been working for myself for about 16 or 17 years mm. and what's happened without me even realizing it is my work and my life are no not separate 
Yeah. They're just part of the same thing. So my day will involve going to Pilates, um, doing a podcast with you, um, you know, doing some housekeeping about this and that. Then I might write, you know, for a couple of hours if I'm working on something. Um, Then if I've had enough and I've found that I have a natural rhythm of work, I will work most productively from about 10 a.m. till about 2 or 3 p.m. I don't stop for lunch. I'll have a sandwich at my desk. Um, and then around 3 p.m., I'm a bit dumb. I, there's nothing much more useful coming out of me. I can do admin and stuff, but then I might go and watch some trashy TV, um, <laughs> you know, and or I might go shopping or whatever it is I need to do. So it's it's not like this is my leisure time, this is my work time, this is my socialising time, etc. No, it's all woven in together. And I love that. Yeah, I, I really hate the uh, term work-life balance because it implies that life is good, work is bad. And for many people, and I'm lucky to be one of them and, and you are as well, you get a lot of enjoyment out of work, a lot of fulfilment. And, uh, you know, it, it's ultimate freedom is working at how to integrate it, just as you've, you've described. I think that is um, ultimately when work um, is very, very healthy. Also, it elevates paid work. Mm. Because what we mean by work mm. is paid work. Mm. But what actually women in particular do mm. is a lot of unpaid work and we pay, we give it so little value. Mm. Um, and yet when you get into this kind of style that I'm in, clearing the kitchen up is work. And yeah. I can be thinking about whatever it is I'm working on. I've always done that. I've always been thinking about ideas and scripts or articles or whatever while I'm cleaning the kitchen, putting on a load of laundry, whatever it is I'm doing. So I like the fact that when you get out of that, work is this, life is this, but no, they're just all part of the same thing. The paid work is no different from the unpaid work. Very much so. With, uh, I've heard you be quite um, forthright about the importance of companies and CEOs to be active in social change. Why do you think that's so important? Well, I think everyone should be active in social change, to be honest with you. Um, the world isn't going to get any better unless people work to make it better. Mm. Um, I, I, but I think, I think also at the moment, because we've got, unfortunately we've got governments that don't believe in governing. I wish we'd stop voting for small government governments. Mm. Like it's, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't promote someone to run a company who didn't believe in the company. I don't understand why we have prime ministers who don't believe in government. Mm. Don't do the job if you don't believe in it. Go do something else, <laughs> um, frankly. Uh, but what's that's done is left a vacuum. And I think we see that most clearly in uh, climate change, mm. that we don't have the leadership we should be having mm. from our elected leaders. Mm. So business is stepping into the breach. And basically that's inevitable. Mm. When there is a vacuum, something will fill it. Definitely. Um, we're fortunate at the moment that the business leaders who are filling it are doing it, it seems, in a pretty responsible way, most of them. I exclude the fossil fuel lobby and the mining uh, companies from that. I think mm. one day they're going to end up where the tobacco companies are. I don't know how they can continue doing what they're doing. I really, really don't. Mm. Every time I look at my grandchildren, I think I can't imagine any of them have any children or grandchildren are working in those businesses. I really can't. Mm. How do you look at them? How do you look at them? And, and continue to pretend you love them. Anyway, um, but I'm interested, I really am inspired by some of the leadership that business has been taking on these issues and 
They have to. They have to because we've got to do something and our governments are morally bereft. Mm. Uh, They are unable to take action, I think, because of um, political donations. I've really thought about this, why are they resisting, and in the end I've come down to the fact that the fossil fuel lobby, I believe, is one of the biggest political donors in this country, and this is a... It's a form of, it's corrupting and it's corrupted our leaders. And so business is having to step in. Thank God they are. Because mm. they realise that their future depends on it. They have to adapt to what's going on. We might pretend that we can be isolated here in Australia, but we're such a, you know, it's such a global world now. It's, uh, you know, we just hear things instantly, what's happening in other countries and uh, you can't. Bushfires. The bushfires. 2019 yeah. said exactly. to us, you bloody idiots. Yeah, what, yeah. You, you can build a wall. Yeah. What? Global warming out? Are you insane? <laughs> it's like I read a headline today that said Scott Morrison has stared down Omicron. <laughs> sure, it's susceptible to staring. I don't think that helps. Like this, it's this macho leadership that somehow stand tough <laughs> and nothing can happen. Oh, yeah. Grow up. You're not five. <laughs> there was a recent report that came out by Atlassian and PwC It was called Return on Action, and basically they identified what employees were most concerned about. And the top three things in the last year, number one was mental health, Mm. number two was uh, cost of living, and number three was um, access to healthcare. Those were the top things. But what was really interesting, the overall engagement for all the people surveyed was 54%. But if their company was taking an active role to address the societal issues, the average engagement was 89%. So if you want to engage younger audiences, younger employees, get them excited about your organisation, you've got to do this stuff. You've got to be very purpose-led. And, um, you know, many of the uh, CEOs have been very fortunate to interview in the last year are very proactive in areas. They, they make things happen. And uh, it's, it's, of course, good for them and their sense of purpose, but it also lifts their organisation, it lifts their employees. Of course, because it is soul-destroying to spend your life and your energy making rich men even richer. It's mm. not a... It's not, it's not, there's no satisfaction in that, particularly in an era of stagnant wages where it seems you make rich men richer but you don't get anything year mm. after year after year out of it. Mm. Um, so, yes, uh, corporations have to come up with a, a more meaningful reason to engage with the company um, than just, you know, we're making money. Mm. Um, shareholders are doing well. That's not particularly inspiring. So I understand it from a purely pragmatic point of view, but I do think it's partly to do with um, the vacuum at the top anyway, which has to be filled by someone. I do worry about it to some extent, though. I'm not entirely serendipitous about it because obviously businesses have a particular agenda um, and we don't, you know, they need to be reined in too. I think the fossil fuel lobby, in fact, is a very good example of what mm. happens when you allow um, business to get too much power in a particular sector. Mm. Um, so I've always been in two minds about philanthropy. I think philanthropy is lovely on one level, but it should always be the icing and mm. never the cake. No child, for example, should have to rely on charity to get a decent education. No uh, body should have to rely on charity to get 
healthcare mm. that they desperately need mm. or food on the table. You know, in a uh, prosperous, I mean, Australia is one of the richest countries that has ever existed and yet somehow we can't afford mm. to make sure that people in work have enough food to feed their family. You know, mm. we, we've got food banks and people who are fully employed mm. are going to them to get food because they have not enough money to, I mean, this is horrific. Yeah. So while it's lovely that businesses are purpose-led, one of the things I think purpose businesses might like to look at mm. is are any of their employees going to food banks? Mm. And if they are, what could they do about that? You know, mm. and maybe stagnant wage growth is 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 an appalling mm. um, purpose. Mm. Uh, I, I, I once heard a, a, saw a guy, I think he was on 60 Minutes, and 20 or 30 years ago, I can't remember his name, he was an American business owner and he, somebody said to him, you know, what's your purpose? And he said, well, you know, I make whatever it was he made. He said, that's not my purpose. He said, my purpose is to provide um, a decent wage for my employees so that they can buy a house and, you know, educate their children and live a reasonable life. He said, that's what I'm for. Yeah. I'm to create wealth and then distribute it to my employees. And I thought, well, hallelujah. Mm. Somebody's finally got it. <laughs> but uh, too many business people still think that they're, and part of it is the Companies Act, which says that it's all about increasing shareholder value. Mm. And I think that that's a problem. Mm. I think that needs to be redefined, mm. that actually business needs to look at being part of the whole community, and that is to increase and enhance the, the, the lives of as many people as possible. Yeah, yeah. Regardless of whether they work for you or not. Yeah. And that's where things like a universal basic income, some of these new ideas that people are talking about, and the wonderful idea of the four-day week. As you mentioned mental health, I have a very strong view that one of the reasons we have such runaway mental health issues, partly it's because most sensible people realise on some level we are staring into the abyss mm. when it comes to a livable planet, mm. um, and nobody really seems to be doing that much about it yet. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons people have mental health issues. But the other is exhaustion. Mm. People feel they have to work so hard to keep their jobs. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to go on holiday. They're afraid for all sorts of reasons. We've made so much work insecure, contract working, casual working, gig workers, you know, mm. so insecure, so unable to be sure that they can have a future and move forward and bring their children up or even have any children. Mm. This is a bad thing. You know, yeah. that if we had a four-day week mandate, nobody works any longer than four days, some companies in New Zealand doing it, it's an idea that's coming up and up. And the research says that far from employers having to pay for it, the productivity goes up yeah. because the mental health issues and the exhaustion goes down. We have a lot of presenteeism. Yeah, very much. Not so. much is actually being produced. And there was a very notable case around that with uh, Microsoft in Japan. And Japan's always had a reputation of workaholics, ridiculous hours, but they went back to four days a week and they found the productivity increased. You know, surprise, surprise. It's, uh, we need those experiments happening and, and once they work, they need to be duplicated and uh, rolled out further. We yes. need to break down the resistance to change, mm. which seems to be 
particularly strong, and I go back once again to our education system, mm. amongst white private school educated men. Yeah, yeah. I understand why if you're in the dominant culture, you have a tendency to be conservative. The reason is the world as it is has worked very well for you. Mm. That's why you're in the privileged class. Yeah. So your fear is if it changes, you might lose out. Yeah. So I understand the basis of conservatism, mm. but unfortunately it has to change and it will change. It will change, yeah. It's no, no doubt about it. So you have to get on board. Conservatism isn't working anymore. It really mm. isn't, yeah. particularly since conservatives decided not to embrace conservation, which has within it the same goddamn word. What is wrong with them? Why didn't they catch on to that? Oh, I forgot, the political donations, that's why. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Jane, and really appreciate, um, you know, your thoughts on a wide range of subjects, but particularly about women and education and changing that, and they are a really important uh, voice. If you could uh, go back to your 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give that 20-year-old self? Don't beat yourself up all the time. <laughs> Don't try and make yourself smaller. Don't worry about what other people think of you. Don't try to fit in. Be yourself. You're fine. You're fine just the way you are. You don't have to be like everybody else. I think 20-year-olds, maybe 20-year-old girls in particular, get so much heavy messaging about how they should be, who they should be, how they should look, how they should behave, how they should be demure and not push themselves forward and not show off and not say what they think. It's terribly destructive and it means it slows us down. Yeah. It slows us down and it makes us miserable and depressed and anxious. And we do the society's oppressive work for them. In our own heads. Yeah. All I would say to my 20-year-old self is it's going to be okay. Just be yourself. Have fun. Relax. It'll all turn out fine. That's a great message. Thanks so much for joining us, Jane. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you. You can see why I never made it to CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.